He's Achilles Missouri. I'm Reggie Bailey. This is Books of Pop Culture. Achilles, how you feeling? I'm feeling like I'm feeling like an entrepreneur. You know, I'm feeling I'm feeling really merchy. You know, you know, I don't know why. I just, hey man, I feel like a brand today. You know. <laughs> A business man. <laughs> a business you man. Um, you know, I'm I'm feeling good. We we recording when we recording this will be out whenever it's out, you know, yeah. and 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 you know, I'm good, man. I can't complain. I'll tell you can't something complain. cool that I think uh probably be cooler, even cooler for the Patreon, but my brother came to see me yesterday. Uh, my uh on my father's side, you know, my uh, my father had many children. My my real father, my biological father, and yeah. and so it's always cool to re to reunite with them. That'll probably be a dope thing for Patreon to talk a little bit more. Hey, and speaking of, thank you to the fellowship, first and last time viewers, first and last time listeners, and everyone in between, because you could be anywhere in the world right now, but you're here with us. That's something we do not take lightly. So thank you truly for spending time with us. Um, there are a lot of different places where you can access books of pop culture. There's YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and, and, and plenty of other places, right? And on those places, you can do things that we like, such as subscribe, follow, like, comment, download, leave a review, right? And something you could do outside those platforms that we really, really like is share with your friends, your family, your physical and digital communities. You may have noticed the fellowship was the first community that I thanked. The fellowship being the community that Achille was just alluding to. And the fellowship is Books About Culture's amazing Patreon community. It's one that Achille and I biasly and objectively believe to be the best yes. in bookish communities. Yes. Um, by choosing to join the fellowship, you are supporting BAPC which is the most dynamic of duos in the bookish landscape. You receive access to bonus BAPC content each month, including uh, monthly giveaways. You get us one step closer to doing books of pop culture for a living as well, which is probably the most, possibly the most important bit. Um, and you can support books of pop culture by going to patreon.com slash books of pop culture. Yes. Um, Achilles, you know, I, I don't know if I've said this before, you know, as, as far as our guests is concerned, but we have a legend today. Yes, yes, we do. Yeah. A legend. Yeah, we, we have a legend, a legend who has authored five novels, right? Mm -hmm. Some, mm -hmm. some of which you may have heard of, uh, you know, like Moth Smoke, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, How to Get Filthy Rich and Rise in Asia, Exit West. One that I'll name a little later on because we'll talk about it. He's mm -hmm. also authored a book of essays, Discontent and Its Civiliz Civilizations. His writing has been translated into 40 languages, you know, featured on bestseller lists and adapted, you know, for the cinema. Yeah. Um, he's won in or been nominated for so many awards that yeah. if you go to his website, there's actually a separate link in his bio that holds you know, all those accolades, right? Right, that's right. Um, the, the legend that we will be speaking to this evening is Moisin Hamid, 
and we will be talking to him about his latest novel, The Last White Man. Yeah. After this quick break. So, most and first off, you know, of course, thank you uh, so much for for taking the time to yes. to join us today, right? But I but I want to just ask you, right? You know, five novels, an essay collection, you know, trans work translated in forty different languages, bestsellers, awards, international acclaim, and monumental impact. Truly, right? When you look at how your work is included on like best of decade lists. And even I saw that the, you know, reluctant fundamentalist was listed by, you know, BBC as, you know, one of the 100 books that, you know, shaped our world. Right. Um, I guess what I want to ask when I, you know, list all those things, right. And, and I'm sure you could probably think of other things I like nowhere close to mentioning. Um, how does it feel to just know that like, your body of work is just so impactful globally. So, um, first of all, you know, thank you for having me. Um, and uh, uh, it's it's a funny question because um, I can't say that it actually feels like that a lot of the time. You know, I think like most writers, most of my days are sitting in this room, you know, trying to write a book failing and being like, you know, I don't know what I'm doing and this is a complete disaster and how am I going to fix this and this book will never be any good. And, you know, and then sometimes there's days where you feel like, okay, no, it's going really well um, and this is feeling pretty good. But, um, but I can't say honestly, you know, I go through my time thinking, you know, I've got this sort of substantial body of work. I, I'm grateful for your saying it. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm mostly, I'm, a little bit confused about how to write the book I want to write next. Um, mm -hmm. And I try, I try to write books where I don't know how to write them. And so each yeah. book is four or five or six years of trying to figure it out. Yeah. So, so it's so funny you say that because before you, you joined us and we were talking, I was, I was telling Achille, I was like, you know, he never writes the same book. Like yeah. all of his, all of his books are like just different and, and, experimental in 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 some way so that was a uh, very very fitting to, uh, to to hear you say that yeah, yeah. you know i mean i think it, it's it's funny you know partly it's um like you know why do we write books or why does anybody write books and and you know for me there's there's a part of it which is um something about the world you know bothers me and um and i guess i i sometimes want to just leave the world that we actually live in um, and try to make another world in my head um, and go there and see what I can do with that and see if I can do a little bit of a better job or just look at things a little bit differently from how we look at them in the you know, the day-to-day -day world. So partly it's that, you know, just sort of the world itself is, is freaks me out or makes me uncomfortable or whatever. Um, and the other part of it is it's, you know, um, how do you how do you get comfortable being on your own? Because you know when you write a book, you're sort of sitting there by yourself for a big chunk of time. And 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 so it's what can you do to make that time by yourself? You know, time that doesn't feel lonely, doesn't feel wasted, doesn't feel you know useless. And and so part of that for me is um, trying to think of you know places I've never been to before in terms of writing. Uh, ways I haven't written before, 
uh, things I don't know I can do. And then suddenly being alone isn't boring. It's like, um, it's kind of challenging. And it becomes, you know, how do I figure out how to do this thing, which I'm not sure I can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's I, awesome. I definitely don't, both of you, I, I'm, I'm assigning a task to both of you right now. Mm -hmm. Like after we ask like our usual, like introductory questions, I want to ask Mosin what was bothering him so that he could make the last white man. That needs to be like, Good, yeah, my, yeah. Okay, and I want, yeah. I'm not even editing this out. Like, y'all have to remind me yeah. to ask him that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and for, you know, my usual first question, I'll alter it to, I'll alter it a little bit today. But our first question is always, how are you doing genuinely? And usually I ask this in a different way, but, you know, I'll add this caveat. If something is bothering you, Please tell us, you know, how are you doing genuinely? If something's bothering you, let us know. If, if you know, the wind is blowing and, the, and, and it's breezing and you're having a great day, let us know. Or if you're in between. So how are you doing uh, genuinely today, Molson? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm doing so hot, to be very honest mm -hmm. with you. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, in the plus column, um, uh, I went and just saw my parents. You know, they live next door. Mm -hmm. And why I spent a lot of time in Pakistan is because, you know, uh, my parents are here and, uh, you know, in, in the culture where I grew up, the idea of trying to spend time with, you know, older relatives is, is pretty central. Um, and, you know, they seem well. I've got my kids are out with their friends. My 10 year old might come home any second and surprise us. And so all that's, you know, happy stuff. Uh, my wife is, is with her friends. You know, somebody's had a birthday. So all that's good stuff. Yeah. Um, and I wrote this piece for The Guardian about migrants, about migration, which just got published a few hours ago, um, wow. which I've been working on last week. So that's, you know, that's uh, about this whole theater around, you know, busing and flying migrants to different parts of the country and what's being signaled by that and what that means and how we can interpret that. Um, so, you know, all that stuff I would put into a, the positive column, not the, not the migrant stuff, but the writing about it, I guess. Yeah. In the negative column, I think you know, what I'm grappling with right now is uh, a kind of pessimism mm. that, you know, just keeps coming over me and worrying, you know, in Pakistan right now, there's been these colossal floods, 30 million people affected, 8 million are homeless, you know, um, this stuff is going to happen more and more. It's going to affect the poorer people of the planet more. Um, and then you see, you know, rising hatred, xenophobia, racism, inequality. So, you know, um, I would like to be able to say that I'm feeling, you know, just dandy. But mm -hmm. I've been fighting with this, with, I guess, this real um, depression, this kind of almost pessimism. And, uh, and so when you ask me, you know, how are you really doing? Um, uh, I, guess, I guess how I'm doing is I'm trying to fight with this pessimism. And I'm not sure, you know, many days if I'm winning the fight. Um, yeah. But I, I'm doing my best uh, trying to figure it out. But that's, that's how I characterize how I'm doing right now. So, so I, I would like to ask you this. And, I, and, and this isn't even necessarily to be provocative. I, I genuinely mean it, too, in spirit, I suppose. Um, is, is your pessimism truly a bad thing, though? And, and, I, and, I, and I ask that because... 
you know, I, I feel like I know a decent amount of people who are, are pessimistic, if, if not fully, partially, for sure. And I, I don't necessarily think it's 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 a bad thing. Like, and, and I know that the things happening are bad. I'm not saying that they're not bad, right? But just having that in you, do you, you know, is that necessarily a bad thing, you think? Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's a great question. I mean, um, when I write, you know, sometimes... <laughs> Writing is about saying, okay, what are the what are the limits? You know, what are the mm. things I'm not going to do? You know, uh, I'm not going to go outside this character's head, or I'm not going to use any names, or I'm not going to mm. do this. I'm not going to do that. And you think, oh, these things are constraints; they're going to slow you down. But what happens is that actually those constraints become um, kind of inspirations, and your mind has a creative response to being sort of locked in, and it comes up with stuff. Right. And that's why poets for thousands of years, you know, they had very rigid forms with a particular meter, a particular, you know, rhythm, rhyme structure. Um, and that stuff was hugely, uh, uh, you know, uh, hugely creative. And how you see in, in so many parts of the world, it's, you know, from communities that have been historically oppressed, that so much incredible creative stuff comes. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so so to your question about, you know, is pessimism a bad thing? No, I think I think that, you know, looking at the world, seeing things that you think are going in the wrong way doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can actually be the exact thing that's the sort of furnace or the fire for making your stuff and for being in the world. And for me, I think I think it is that. But there's a really fine balance, right? There's the balance that getting you down, you take that, you harness that, you put that back into the world as something that you think can combat what's causing the pessimism. And that I think is a really healthy thing. Yeah. There's, other, the, there's also the kind of paralyzing part of it, right? Where you're sitting there saying, I can't do anything. You know, I don't want to leave my house. I don't want to go to work. I don't want to write this book. I don't want... And I think that when pessimism becomes that, then it stops feeling, it stops feeling that. And so for me, I guess one of the reasons why I write is to prevent the pessimism from becoming you know, paralysis you know, from mm -hmm. keeping it as like a source of energy as opposed to something that just makes you cuddle up in bed and saying, you know, hell with this, I can't face the world. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Thank, thank you for that answer. And, and, and speaking of writing, um, I, I love asking this question um, just because so, so, so many, you know, versatile answers have been provided. And, and that is, you know, what is the most important lesson or, you know, what are, the most important lessons you've learned about the business of writing? About the business of it? Yes. Whew. Okay. Uh, the business of it. That's an interesting one. So I think that um, it's, it's a really tricky thing, the business of it. So on the one hand, you know, you want to try to make a living at doing this thing, maybe. Um, you want people to read your stuff. You know, you want it to get out there into the world. You want it to make a difference. And to do all of that, all of those things, you need to participate in the business of writing. Like that's how your work gets into the world. It's how you get paid for your work. It's how people find out about your work. All of that stuff happens. Um, the problem with it, of course, is that... Um, that sometimes it's those very things that are the opposite of what made you want to write stuff <laughs> in the first place. Yeah. So, 
so, um, uh, you know, it would be great if we could just sort of write our truth and sort of just boom, it goes into the universe and people are like reacting to it. And we're all, you know, somebody, somehow the rent gets paid and you get, you know, lunch comes in. Um, uh, it doesn't work like that. But I think, um, I think, I think the business is something, you know, it's something that, that you have to, uh, you have to figure out your relationship to. And, uh, you know, there, it's a tricky one because um, for me, you know, with every book, I'm, I guess, trying to question, you know, what I'm up to, you know, and ask myself, you know, what, what's behind this? You know, what, what do you say you're doing? What are you really doing? And why are you doing this? Um, and to think about, you know, um, is there stuff that I'm up to that I don't really believe in? You know, am I fooling myself into thinking X when I really believe Y? You know, to what extent am I responding to the business? Um, and you know, you can't you can't help uh, you can't help in a sense responding to it. I mean, if you're a musician, you get up on a on you perform a concert and people in that place react to you. You know, um, it does something to your performance and it does something to next day's performance, and it's part of the business in a way. But I guess. Um, uh, you know, for me, one of the things I thought was early on, I thought, you know, I'm going to always um, treat it as though I might need to do something else to make a living. Mm. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, in a sense, tell myself that the writing has to pick up that load. If I get lucky and it picks up the load for a year or two or 10 or 20, fantastic, right? But if it doesn't, um, I need to have something else to do so that the writing can still be writing I love. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because if I make the writing into a job, I'm in a kind of trap where um, uh, I've taken this thing that I've loved and I made it just like any other job and, and then I stop, I stop loving it. And so, and so I think, you know, for me, I guess the one thing I've learned about the business is you always have to figure out um, how to be in the business without killing the thing that makes you want to makes you want to write in the first place yes yes that's the proverbial grain we were talking about um a few <laughs> episodes back um which is which is absolutely true absolutely true one thing i'll say about that is, is is often young writers ask me about this i said look have something else on the side like figure out what your other thing is you can teach you can mm -hmm. be a journalist you can be a dentist you can work in a shop you can do you know whatever it is that you do um but write and do that something else um, I think, you know, I think this idea that you should just, all, all you should do is write. And that's all you should do. And if it doesn't work out, it's because you're not good enough. I think that's, that's ridiculous. Um, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, yeah, you might enjoy playing cards with your friends, but being a professional gambler is a different, uh, activity entirely. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, uh, you have to keep the part of it you love without letting it, uh, uh crush you. Yeah, yeah. I find in my writing, you know, like the, the, the jobs I've had and the places I have kind of been are informing the novel I'm trying to form um, in, a, in a certain way, too. So I, I totally agree with that. You know, I, I don't know if I don't know if what I am trying to create could be what it is going to be if I was like able to just solely be in here and be a writer, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I think, I think that I think right is that the stuff you've got in the world to do um, is the stuff that you can bring into your writing. You know, I mean, 
uh, I think I think a writer, in a sense, needs to live in the world and read a lot. Uh, those are the things you have to do. And um, and if you're spending all your time writing, what begins to happen, I think, is your experience of the world can sometimes start to narrow down, and you can have less and less experience of the world. And then you have to see there's a kind of a race as you get older, and that race is between getting older and hopefully getting wiser, understanding the world more. Um, but also, uh, on the one hand, but on the other hand, being less fresh and less in the world and less bringing into your writing stuff that is, you know, that is new and that is lived experience. And so you sort of, I guess, balance those two things. Uh, can you provide your, uh, your synopsis or your elevator pitch of what uh, the last white man is about and let us know the inspiration behind it. So Last White Man is a story of uh, four people and, and um, we begin with Anders and he's a young man in an unnamed city, unnamed country, unnamed town really, unnamed country. And uh, he wakes up one morning and he's dark. And when he went to bed the night before, he thought of himself as white. And he doesn't really want to believe this has happened. And he sort of, you know, hopes that he's dreaming, hopes it's not real. Um, and then he asks his girlfriend, Una, to come and have a look and tell him what, you know, she thinks. And Una comes. He's hoping she'll say, oh, well, you know, yeah, okay, you're a little different, but it's the same. And she's like, no, you're, you're, you're a completely different person. You don't look anything like what you did before. You're something else now. Yeah. And then he doesn't want to go out into the world. He wants to sort of hide, but he has to go out. And he goes out um, and he... Uh, you know, he's he grapples with that. And so that's Anders' story. Alongside that, there's Una's story. Una is this, this woman who's been dating Anders, who um, initially is sort of not really that excited about having to deal with this crisis in Anders' life. Her own brother's just died. Her mother's in bad shape, and she sort of has a lot on her plate. But she finds, as the novel progresses, that she weirdly enough sees him more clearly now that he's changed and that she kind of likes what she sees. And so that's like the central love story. And there's two other love stories. There's Una's love for her mother. And Una's mother is this woman who's lost her husband, uh, lost her son, um, and kind of thinks the world isn't fair anymore. And that people like her and Una and her mother, uh, they think of themselves as white. And they, you know, um, she's, she feels like there's some great injustice happening. And people like her are being victimized. And in fact, they're being erased. Um, and in the novel, as more and more people turn dark, in a way, she's not entirely wrong. You know, they are, in a way, being erased uh, in a certain sense, although not really erased. They're becoming something else, but, mm -hmm. um, but it can feel a bit like being erased. And Una's sort of grappling with her mother's view on this and her mother's sort of um, kind of uh, connection to this online world of, of conspiracy theories and, um, and, and sort of white nationalism in a way. And, and then there's Anders' dad. And Anders, Anders has also lost his mother. Uh, his dad is sick. Um, and he's sort of dying over the course of the novel. Uh, and, and, and he and Anders have this relationship. And Anders' dad is trying to pass something on to his son. Um, he's like trying to show his son. He can't give him anything else. He's dying. But he's trying to show his son as he approaches his death. He's trying to be a good dad to his son. And so you have two intergenerational love stories between these two, Anders and Una and his father, her mother, 
you have Anders and Una's love story. And these three love stories basically are the backdrop or the real architecture on which a whole world of people becoming dark uh, uh, is enacted. And so we see a world where by the end, uh, there's nobody left who, who has light skin. The question that I assign to the both of you is going to come back, right? <laughs> and, and, and this question is, what was bothering you when um, you were writing The Last White Man? So, you know, um, I, I, when I was 30 years old in 2001, I had lived 18 of my first 30 years in the U.S., uh, and since then, I've lived a long time in London. I've lived in Pakistan. So I've lived about half my life in Pakistan and the rest between the U.S. and the U.K. And, um, and you know, I lived in the Bay Area in California. I lived in New York City. I'd gone to these sort of elite universities and I had this well-paying job. And of course, you know, I knew that there was racism in America. And of course, I knew that there was, you know, discrimination all over the world. But if you ask me in your life personally, you know, how important is is discrimination to the way you live your life every day. You know, 20, 21 years ago, I probably would have said, you know, it's not in my top three or four things. Uh, it's not one of the things I worry about the most. Um, and then uh, right after my 30th birthday, the September 11th terrorist attacks happened. And suddenly, you know, I was found at like um, every airport, they pull you out of the line and you fly into JFK and they put you in a small room and question you for five hours. And then, you know, then they make you write down your address and where you're going to be staying. And, um, you know, people would be uncomfortable if you came onto the subway or the bus with your backpack, you hadn't shaved. And, you know, it was like overnight, suddenly people were looking at me in this different way. And, and for a while, I was like, I want things to go back and I hope things go back. And after a while, I started thinking, wait a second, you know, what does it mean to want things to go back? You know, um, what was this thing that was so great, which I've lost, right? And I started thinking, you know, maybe what I've lost is uh, in America, you know, uh, race is something where there's a sort of, there's a two poles around the racial system was built mainly, which is sort of, you know, people who've been defined as being black. And that category was created. And so you have this category called white, which is the other people, and you build a racial system on that background, right? And before that, it doesn't exist because, you know, these, these aren't, they aren't black. They're people from all these different places in Africa and all these different places in Europe. And so they would have said, if you ask them, are you white? They said, no, I'm Polish or I'm Irish. But now suddenly they're all white and somebody from Ghana and somebody from Nigeria and somebody, you know, they're all black. And, um, and so you create this concept. Now, in that concept, somebody like me, who's kind of brown, uh, but was at a well-paying job and lived in these particular cities and whatever else, hadn't kind of undetermined position you're not black you're not white you know what are you and i guess what happened was that somebody like me was able to go through life benefiting from a kind of partial whiteness and then suddenly you're like you see that wait a second that can be taken away and so if the initial reaction was um you know i want it back um as the time went by it became wait a second wait a second wait a second what do i want back you know, what was this system? Why on earth would I want to participate in this thing? You know, how was I complicit in this system before? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that, that now that I'm seeing the system more clearly, my instinct is, hey, I wish that the system just worked in my favor. 
that seems a pretty pretty weak you know response. Um, and so the years went by, and you know I wrote a novel called Latin Fundamentalist, which was more specifically about this Muslim you know Western tension and how we imagine a sense of threat onto each other. But the underlying racial question stayed with me. And for a while, I guess, you know, I thought I could imagine that America was headed in the right direction, that, you know, race is becoming less significant. And I think for many of us, the Barack Obama presidency was, first of all, this incredibly hopeful moment. Um, but also you sort of thought, oh, well, this is what this is the way history is going. Right. History is now there's going to be black presidents, there's going to be brown presidents, there's going to be this, there's going to be that. The racial system is going to get dismantled and, you know, it's going to be fine. It might take 100 years, but we're going the right way. And then, um, you know, suddenly the Obama presidency gives way to the Trump presidency of the United States. In Britain, there's the Brexit vote, you know, to leave uh, the European Union. Everybody's talking about the real people, the real citizens. And it feels like, wait a second, you know, maybe my way of thinking about history and the direction I thought history was going in is actually not the direction history is going in. You know, maybe history is going in a very different direction. And then the idea of writing a novel, you know, about this, uh, specifically about race and how we kind of imagine it into existence. Um, and, and in a sense, trying to put on another point of view to say, I'm going to write a novel for the first time that only really has white characters. I'm not going to give myself a, a brown, black a person of color who's going to be my stand in who's going to judge these people from my point of view, or that the reader gets to say, this character is the one who's right, and I can look to them for guidance. I'm going to have none of that. I'm going to have a kind of, in a sense, a kind of racial apocalypse, but viewed entirely from the standpoint of these white characters. What's it feel like? You know, what does it mean? Um, and I thought, you know, I want to do this because um, I think one of the interesting things that fiction can do is Sometimes fiction um, allows us to represent our experience. And that's very important, particularly when, you know, particular stories have been systematically oppressed or been prevented from being told. But sometimes fiction lets us pretend to be somebody else. You know, you can pretend to be a T-Rex. You can pretend to be a pirate. You can pretend to be a woman if you're a man or a man if you're a woman, you know. And maybe you can pretend to be you know, four white characters dealing with the end of whiteness. And so I wanted to do that kind of transgressive move. And I wanted to see how does that make people feel? Uh, if this is your fear, you know, let's, um, let's get into it. Um, and if it isn't your fear, uh, uh, let's get into it too. Um, and, and let's all go into this pretty uncomfortable place and see how it makes us feel. So I was a uh, English teacher for a while, and so I taught uh, Franz Kafka's uh, Metamorphosis, right? And and I'm, I'm like I said, I'm working on a novel, and um, and I'm, I got this book, which I really don't generally read like books like this that teach you how to write, but this one's really good, and it came from an author that I really respect. Um, but you know, um, it, it teeters on this idea of there being certain stories that exist, right? Thinking, think of the, the name of that story. I think it's like the hero of a thousand faces um, where, you know, there are these stories and you can take them and then you look at them from different angles. And so when what I'm thinking about is when Gregor Samsa wakes uh, change, one of his greatest reservations was the preservation of his consciousness. And Anders is is no different, but also, it is. There's a certain racial consciousness 
that all of the characters as they change hope to maintain. And this preservation of their racial consciousness keeps the characters teetering as the entire society teeters on the brink of anarchy and revolution, as you put it. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about the ambivalent space the characters find themselves in as they become black or dark and as they observe blackness on those who were recently white. I'm thinking about scenes like Anders father and Una's mother observing the two sexually and Una's yeah. evolving relationship with Anders over the course of the text as well. So can you talk about like this, this voyeuristic racial yeah. consciousness, you know, that's kind of yeah. occurring and, and how it's affecting them. Well, the thing about it is, I mean, I guess my starting point for thinking about that stuff is that we think race is real, right? But actually it's kind of been imagined into existence. It doesn't really exist. Now, once you imagine it into existence, it does, right? Like, you know, um, once you say that there's such a thing as race, then you can, you know, people, you can do whatever you want. Um, so so once, once you, you make that move and you say, you know, I, I believe in this, you know, like somebody, you can say somebody's religion isn't true. They can still kill you for their religion, right? So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. so it's like that, right? So I think, I think that the religion of race, so to speak, is made up. Um, people can still kill you for it. Now, uh, uh, so for me, the, the idea is, you know, because race is not like, you know, the planet Jupiter or like, uh, you know, like an automobile, like an actual thing which we know exists, because it's something that we sort of imagined into existence, it gets really freaky when our imagination starts getting played with, right? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, for example, you know, friends of mine who've moved from, from Ghana or Nigeria to New York, um, and they go from being, you know, somebody from Ghana, somebody from Nigeria to black in an American context. And they're like, you know, what the hell is going on? Like, this is really <laughs> yeah. weird. Like, yeah. I, I haven't changed. Like, I look exactly the same, but people are reacting to me in a totally different way. Um, and similarly, I suppose, if you were to be somebody, you know, who thinks of themselves as white um, and you arrive in Pakistan, you might find people are reacting to you differently from how you might have thought of yourself, you know, before. Who knows? So... So I guess the first thing is the, the, the whole construct is imagined into existence. Now, um, so when Anders changes, right, he wants to remain white. Um, and, but to remain white, there has to be some whiteness that he can hold yeah. on to. Now, the problem is other people are looking at him and they're not seeing whatever cue they need to see to imagine that he actually is white. People who know him might sort of say, okay, you're still the same, whatever. But, and so what he begins to discover is that identity isn't, you know, its own thing. Identity is a relationship. In other words, you don't get to be just white or black or brown, right? My being brown in an American context depends on being in relationship with an American. Because if I walk out the door and onto the street, nobody's going to think of me as brown because in Pakistan, I'm just Pakistani. There is no like brown category. Yeah. Right? It's just, I'm just a person. Um, the brown category comes into existence when I meet somebody who's got other categories like white and black or whatever, and they then have to put me into that category and suddenly I'm in that category. So, so Anders finds that he, he, he wants to show he's the same but he's struggling to do it. And he's struggling to do it for a couple of things. First of all, when people look at you differently, 
he discovers you are different, right? <laughs> like if somebody looks at you as suspicious, just by trying to act not suspicious, you're not being natural. <laughs> and so suddenly you're like, you're trying to communicate, hey dude, I'm no threat. But that's suddenly a little bit threatening, isn't it? Like, you know, what are you, you, know, what are you reacting to here? What do you mean you're not a threat? Um, if, why do you have to say you're not a threat? If you're saying you're not a threat. So Andrew starts to find that, um, that actually trying to act white is kind of the least white thing he can do because the whole point of his being white was he didn't have to do anything to, to show that he was. He just was, yeah. Yeah. right? And now he has to demonstrate that he's white without looking white and it's kind of impossible. And the yeah. more he tries to act white, the more weird he seems and the less white he feels. And, and, and so he initially goes thinking that this is just a skin deep thing. But very quickly, he discovers that that's not how it works. Um, it gets written onto you. And once it's written onto you, you're something else. Now, is he brown or black or whatever? Who the hell knows what that is? But he's, he's somebody who's, you know, in a sense, he's like a migrant. He's just arrived in a new country. Um, and he has to recalibrate what he is and he, whatever he thought he was before doesn't apply. So, so that's what's happening for Anders. Now, in the context of Una, it's, it's a slightly different thing that's going on because Una, first of all, um, you know, she's relating to this guy and she's sort of like, this is really heavy. Like, you know, I just lost my brother and my mom's in bad shape. Do I really want to deal with this dude's like racial crisis? I'm not sure I do, but you know, it's kind of interesting in a way. And they broke <laughs> up and it's like, you know, suddenly your boyfriend looks different. That's kind of interesting. And then, you know, but then what starts to happen is she starts to see things about him that are sort of what he's really about. In other words, he looks different. But the things about him that she still likes are what he really is. So bizarrely for her, she, she sees Anders more clearly. Um, you know, uh, because she begins to see, okay, he's totally, looks totally different. The world is treating him differently. Things are falling apart around us. And yet, huh, you know, he's a pretty decent dude. And, um, you know, and, he, and he's compassionate. Um, and, 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 you know, he understands my feeling of loss. And he's trying to navigate as best as he could. And, and so, in a way... When she begins the novel, he's sort of a more casual relationship. They get to know each other much better, and the relationship gets much deeper. And, and Una, in her own way, she's a little bit sick of her life. You know, she's lost her brother, her mom's in bad shape. She's kind of ready for things to change. And she wouldn't have, you know, chosen to become dark necessarily. But she's sort of like, you know what, this life and this situation is just not working. So if things are going to change, Maybe let them change. Yeah. Now, Una's mom, on the other hand, is desperate to hold on to this thing. You know, she, she wants, even after she changes, she wants to somehow communicate her whiteness to her grandchild uh, and to say, look, you know, this is where we come from. This is what it was. And this is who we are. And the grandkid, like grandkids everywhere, is a little bit, you know, like, you know, look, grandmom, I'm, I'm not sure I really want to know about, you know, the old days. Um, mm -hmm. But also the grandkid's a little bit embarrassed. She's a little bit kind of horrified. And she's, you know, a little bit like, look, I understand that this, you know, this is important to you and you know, I love you, but, um, but the stuff you're trying to communicate isn't something I really want to pick up and carry with me. I, I, I'd rather just, you know, leave it with you.
and yeah. we can go in a different direction now. And Andrew's father, and the last one I'll say is in terms of how he's he's dealing with this. Um, in a sense, he he thinks that his son, who's had a tough life, wasn't a good student. You know, he's kind of lost in his way. He works in a gym. He never finished college. He's sort of, you know, his his dad has always been a little bit disappointed in him, and he thinks, oh, you know, now look, now he's dark. It's going to be even harder for him. Yeah, yeah. He also, but he also is like, you know, this is my son. Things have gotten even harder, and my job is to take care of him. And so, in a sense, separate from you know his color and his Anders's dad would never have wanted this to happen to Anders. He's like, okay, this has happened, and now I'm going to protect him as best I can. So I'm going to physically protect him when he's under threat, if I can do that, and I'm going to try to show him, you know, as I face my own death. I'm trying to show him, you know, what strength is and what dignity is. And I'm trying to pass this on to him and hopefully give him something in doing that. Yeah. And so they all navigate, I guess, this racial thing in, in, in these different ways. You know, you, you've talked about just, I guess, the, the health struggles that Anders and Una's, um, you know, uh, you know, mom and dad, respectively, um, you know, uh, we're going through. Um, and, and one thing that, that stood out to me is the fact that, not only, you know, is 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 there this situation where, you know, we have, you know, people losing, you know, their their whiteness. Right. Um, but I was also fascinated with the fact that Anders works at a gym and Una is, uh, you know, works at this yoga studio. Right. And I wanted to know not only like about, I guess, the whiteness aspect, but the health aspect. What mm-hmm. what role do what did you want to say about? health uh through these characters in the last white man well you know health is important because you know una's mother is grappling with her mental health and with you know she's, she's not doing so well she's lost her son um and you know her son has had some sort of drug overdose and he's been you know heading down the path for a long time uh una's brother and and anders father is also really unwell um anders and una are engaged in these two kind of i guess health professions, you know, um, and there's two aspects of that. One is, of course, they're trying to hold on to their health in a, in a, you know, she's lost her father. Suddenly she's lost her brother. He's lost his mother. He's losing his father. And so you could see why, in a way, being healthy was, is important to them. But the other part of it is, I think it has to do with going from a culture where labor was thought of as important, where, you know, if you, if you grew crops, or you worked in a farm, or you worked in a factory, you know, that, that was valuable work. Like that labor fed people, it made automobiles, it was valuable. You could see why when you came home, you know, with the milk, with the wheat, with the butchered pig, with whatever it was, with the paycheck from your assembly line, you know, you had done labor, and society said labor was important. And now it's as though, like, labor isn't important. Right. If you do labor, you're just, you know, you're an idiot. Like, why, you know, why, 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 why would anybody do labor? What you need to do now is have a bunch of capital that has other people doing labor. And you need to sit there with your capital and just sort of, you know, make your money that way. Anybody who actually does the work themselves, um, you know, is, is, uh, is the underclass. And so um, I think that, uh, uh, so for me, it was interesting that these two characters in a way are doing labor. But the labor they're doing doesn't feel essential. 
right? It's like, oh, you work in a yoga studio. Okay, that's important. But what are you making? You know, you work in a gym. It's important. But what are you making? And so they're both engaged in a kind of new labor where they work with their bodies and they make something. But it's not quite clear what the hell they make or why society <laughs> should value that or why they should feel good about doing that. And so, and so I think a lot, of, a lot of, you know, their roles, yes, they, health is important and their physical job, they do physical jobs. They don't do, I guess you could say, office jobs. But what they make from those physical jobs, not the money, but what they physically make is kind of ephemeral. Like, what is it? What's the benefit of it? And I think that's something which has happened in, in, in so many cultures where we've basically said to people, you know, um, labor, is, labor is just something which is here temporarily to replaced by a machine. Um, yeah. And you are, you are in a dead-end job, not just from a monetary standpoint, but from a human civilization standpoint. You know, you one day will be a robot. Um, and me, if I program the robots or I own the robots, I'm important. But you... You're just a dead end on human evolution. And I think we're telling most of the planet that right now. And yeah. so in a sense, that's what uh, Anders and Una come from. They come from that domain. Hey, I, I, I love all that. And, and it's interesting because, um, you know, our, our last guest that we had on is uh, Sadiq Fafana, who's the author of Stories from Tens Downstairs. And one topic that we had from that book that you were kind of like, speaking to and it, and it also kind of shows you know um in, in last white man as well is just like this the the dishonor that's associated with this honest living you know okay. and that is just such a fascinating topic uh to to just examine although it's probably not necessarily fascinating to live with um but i, I just it's just interesting like how how you illuminate that yeah, uh, that, that's so important. I mean, I think I think the word you said there, dishonor, you know, is so important. Um, uh, I mean, for me, the idea of dignity and honor is pretty much at the center of this book. And um, in, in, all over the world, I think what we see is people feeling that they're losing their dignity. And um, they can lose it in a group sense because either their group used to be dominant and now it's becoming less dominant. Um, or they can use it because their group is systematically oppressed and treated as less than human and not allowed to have dignity or not or, or had to fight for its dignity. Um, and they can lose it because the economy means that what they do is not treated as having value. Um, and, and they're just disrespected as, as a human being, as part of the human family. Um, and, uh, you know, and so I think this idea of dignity and honor um, is, is very, very important. And, and so um, one of the struggles that Anders has is how do I find a sense of dignity, you know, after this change? Where's my dignity gonna come from? You know, in a sense, when you said about dishonor, Anders is really grappling with what, what he considers to be the dishonor of no longer being white. Now, in Andrews's case, of course, that has happened, that has happened, you know, because he looks different, right? But you can imagine that for some other person, it might be happening because people don't think of white people the same way anymore. You know, you can lose, it can be a dishonor just not to be at the apex of society anymore. 
right? You don't have to change the way you look to experience dishonor. You can be changed the way you get perceived that can create a sense of dishonor. And I think all over the world, what's happening is a lot of people are feeling dishonored. And, um, and so as we grapple with these social changes and try to figure out where are we headed, we have to think also about how do we restore a sense of honor and dignity to people while moving towards a kind of more egalitarian, more equal you know, world. Um, because if, if it's like, look, we are going to make the world more equal or we're gonna make our country more equal. And some other group is like, well, what you're basically saying is you're gonna dishonor us. And if the response is, well, yeah, actually that's true. Then what's going to happen in a lot of these countries is there's gonna be some kind of civil war. You know, mm -hmm. that's what happens. I mean, living in Pakistan, one of the things I've seen, you, you, see, you can see what's happening in Afghanistan right next door. You can see it again and again. When societies reach that point where groups feel that there's no way forward, that it's, it's my group versus your group, um, then you're in a kind of trap. And in that trap, violence starts to become the outcome. Now, the real, I think, interesting challenge is how do you give people an idea of some new and different dignity and honor that we can participate in. So you can relinquish this thing that you think gives you dignity and honor, but actually that dignity and honor is, is, is built upon denying dignity and honor to other people. Uh, you can let go of that and let's find a different kind of human dignity and honor that we can all participate in. And I think that becomes pretty close to what the, at the heart of what the book is trying to ask. Like, what would that be? How do you get there? You know, what, what is that? Speaking of dignity and, and the loss of it, I want to talk about uh, social media a little bit. Um, <laughs> um, personal personal visibility uh, in the worldview is a is a theme in, in this work. And um, as I as I mentioned earlier, you know your your novel uh, presents a new and interesting dynamic to to an old story. And social media is one of those things I think uh, one has to analyze and dissect, particularly Una's relationship with it. Uh, early on, she uh, pontificates on the concept of monetization, and it made me think uh, about the impending monetization of myself. I'm here with my social media merchandise, on, right? Um, and as I get paid on on all the platforms that I exist on, other than TikTok, which is a whole nother wonderkin, uh, I find myself thinking about the ways that my attractiveness, my skill uh, as, a, as a question creationist, and my relationship with my personal growing celebrity in the way it makes others view me in the world. Uh, when I was an undergrad in the late aughts, as Reggie, Reggie taught me, it's called like the, the, the late early 2000s, um, we were discussing uh, Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crank uh, and Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go and other dystopian novels in reference to this coming splintering of the self uh, that social media was going to bring. And I wonder if you could talk about Una's relationship to her physical self and her digital self for a bit and, and what it says or doesn't say about our relationship to the self. Social media is, is a really, really interesting thing. And um, I guess I come from the generation, I was born in 1971, where you know, I'm, I remember a time before PCs, before computers. I remember a time before mobile phones. I got my first mobile phone when I had my first job around the age of 26, like my first proper, you know, uh, yeah. living in my own apartment kind of job. And um, 
but it wasn't a smartphone, you know, it was just a cell phone. And then it was 10 years later, I guess, till the smartphones arrived. Um, social media comes in, in my thirties really. And so, um, unlike my kids who sort of experienced it from the day they're born, um, for me, it's something that I'd lived half my life, you know, already before I even came up to it, uh, more than half my life, if you count from now. And, um, and I remember thinking that, you know, anybody who's encountered any kinds of addiction in their life, you know, whether it was um, smoking, mm-hmm. you know, or whether it was a dear friend who was like, you know, uh, went down the trail of being addicted to some sort of heavy drugs and uh, seen their life sort of implode. And, you know, I'd, I'd experienced both of those things and, and, and more. I think anybody who's had any kind of experience with addiction up close and personal, um, if you encounter social media for the first time in your thirties, it's pretty clear to you right away, at least it was to me, um, just what an addictive thing <laughs> this was. Yeah. You know, how, how you sort of, you're fiending for it and you're kind of, you know, thinking about it and when you're going to get on it again and when, what's it going to do and, you know, um, uh, a lot of people, you know, I, a lot of people would in the 70s, in the 80s in Lahore, in Pakistan, with this dictator, General Zial Haq, and, you know, there was um, uh, a ban on alcohol and a ban on, you know, foreign television stuff. And, you know, there was, it was this whole thing called Islamization. And, um, and, you know, a lot of the young people I knew in my teens, um, you know, were running around uh, trying to get their hands on weed. And, um, and, uh, and it was, you know, and it wasn't just that, oh, well, it was fun to smoke a joint. Um, it was the whole thing. All right. Yeah. Who has it? Where do you get it from? <laughs> Chasing it down. Oh, yeah. has got it. Going to their place. You know, it, it was a whole day's activity. And um, it, filled, it filled a time when there was a lot of time to be filled. Anyway, I, I think back of that time when I think of social media, it just suddenly starts to fill your day yeah. and it starts to fill your mind and you start fiending for it and you start connecting to your friends on it. It starts. So, so I, I, I'm not on it myself. And I think just because I suspect I have too much of an addictive personality to, to, to like the person I've become or the way that it shapes me. I think yeah. people who are, than me and are are better able to to navigate that or have some more robust relationship to it probably are, are, are better but you know you try taking your uh, their ipad from your 10 year old um, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're fighting an addict i mean it's 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 obvious right the kind of tangible <laughs> thing it, this, is, this is this is you know it's not like taking their you know taking their football yeah um, and so so, uh, so okay, and, and that's the backdrop of the whole social media thing. Now, um, Una in this character, you know, she's, she's tried to monetize herself on social media. And she's gone on and, you know, she's reasonably attractive and she's, you know, there's this yoga stuff and people follow her. And she's got a few thousand people. But, but the other thing about social media is that it puts you into a relationship of comparison with the entire planet. Yeah. You know, before... You were the best guitarist, like in your elementary school or high school class. There were thirty kids, and one of them played the guitar really well, and that was you. And you mm-hmm. felt pretty good about that, right? And now there's a dude who can play on, you know, with his nose, 
like the guitar. <laughs> and he's also, he's six. And he does that with his nose while his fingers like playing the piano, right? And, and you feel like, you know, you're, you're nothing. Uh, yeah. uh, yes, guitarist in your class is meaningless because out of the 8 billion people on planet Earth, there's a musician, musical genius who makes you think, I shouldn't even waste my time with this damn thing. Like, what am I doing? Yeah. And it's the same thing else. You're funny? Well, this dude is funnier. You're attractive? Well, no, you're not, actually. You're not even close. Look at this yeah. person. You know, there's millions <laughs> of people like them because of how attractive they are. You're just a joke. Yeah. And, so, and so what begins to happen, right, in this thing, and what happens to Una, is she's like, you know, I'm doing, I guess, reasonably well. I've got a few thousand followers, but that's not enough. That's not going to make me a living. And, and I kind of feel sort of bad about it. And I'm always doing this thing and I, I need to get off it. And so when her brother dies, just before the novel begins, she kind of leaves social media to the side and gets off it for a while. Mm -hmm. um, now, Una's mother, on the other hand, is still on. Yeah. And Una's mother is having an experience, which I think is, is the basic experience of being a human being in, in the era of, of the machine, right? So... You know, we, we had machines before, but we didn't necessarily adapt our culture to machine preferences so much as we do today, right? What machines do now is machines sort things, right? Machine culture online is a sorting culture. Um, it says, you know, black, white, male, female, gay, straight, you know, eight out of 10, nine out of 10, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and what happens is that you get into this thing and you're a human being, which means you're kind of hard to sort, right? Like, you know, you're, you're, you're black, but you also like classical music. And, you know, you're also like, you love sushi is your favorite food. And you're, you know, like, what the hell are you? Like, what is this person? You know, you're not, you're not you know, conforming to any easily predictable thing. Um, and so, you know, what starts to happen is, let's say you get on there, and you make 10 or 12 posts about random stuff, the local library, you know, the weather, um, the sandwich you had today, nobody much responds, right? You know, and then one day you put a little post up that, you know, today at the sandwich shop, there was somebody a little bit rude to me, you know, and, uh, and I, didn't, uh, I didn't really appreciate it. And somebody said, oh, I was at a sandwich shop. Was it that person? Like, yeah, I think they're not, they're, I think they're, they're rude generally yeah and you're like it was that person you know um and the person's like do you think it's, do you think that person's like you know racist against white people or brown people or black people or whatever person you are like you know what maybe they are suddenly there's 10 likes on that one you're like wait a second that's kind of interesting you know first time i've said something and i'm getting a little bit of feedback here and then you know the next thing is oh it happened again on the mm -hmm. bus that bus driver, who I think just moved to this country two years ago, is talking to me like, you know, I didn't have exact change or whatever it was. I didn't have the pass. And like, you know, how dare they? 100 likes. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. 100 likes. You know, that's pretty good. You know, then there's a post about why do we have bus drivers in our town who clearly aren't really Americans or whatever else? 1,000 likes. So... In, in the attention economy, what turns out to matter the most is stuff that scares us. So we, like every animal, we treat a threat as the most important information that we can get. And, um, of course, we care about uh, 
things that are nice to eat. We care about finding a beautiful mate. We care about, you know, a um, nice house. But um, if something's going to kill us, that's most important. Uh, and so in the machine culture, when you're trying to get people's attention, it turns out that if you scare them, you get their attention much more easily. And so, and so in the attention economy, we keep getting sent information that scares us. We get scared. Then we get more of it. Then we get scared. We get more of it. And it gets more and more intense. And so people wind up terrified of each other uh, in the space of just a few months, I think, of, of living in the online attention space. Yeah. 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 And, and it's that is so interesting, too, because you know, this, this provocative statement that I tend to say every chance I get on here is, um, you know, people don't want positive images. It, it, it's something that I do believe to a degree. Of course, I don't, I don't believe in the complete generalization as the statement would lead you to believe, but I believe in a lot of instances, people say they want positive images, but their actions say otherwise. But what I appreciate about what you say is like, I guess, the instinctual uh, nature that maybe lives behind that provocative statement, how it, 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 it speaks our likelihood to pay more attention to like the quote unquote negativity is something more innate as opposed to something we desire. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, <clears throat> I think too, like the other side of that is, and this is something else you point out, Mawson, uh, is it's, it's instinctual programming and then it's cultivated through, um, through intentional media programming. And so it's, yep. it's, it's not necessarily that people don't want positive images is that we are instinctively programmed, right. To, to respond a certain way to negative, right, or threatening images. And the people who are in power are aware of that and they cultivate that and they hurt Absolutely. us. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, you know, there's, there's always been opium poppies, right? But it is an intervention to make it heroin, right? There's, there's <laughs> always been the coca plant, right? But it's an intervention to make it crack. So in the same way, we have this feeling about threats but it's an intervention to give us this constant stream of targeted threat information. Yeah. So, yeah. so now I may not be able to say people don't want positive images on this platform anymore, but... No, they don't <laughs> want it because they're not supposed to want it. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. it's, it's, it, it, the, the thing about it is, is, is that it's, it's, we are assuming it's about what we want. Right. It's not about what you want. You might actually want positive images more, but but you respond more powerfully to a threat, even though you don't want to. And then if you get hit with that threat information. Right. Um, it doesn't matter what you want. Right. Yeah. You know, once you're hooked on the heroin, once you're hooked on the crack, you may want not to have it tomorrow, but it kind of doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so. And so, and so similarly, I think you may want to have positive stories, but it doesn't matter because you've been hooked on the negative stuff and they're just going to keep giving it to you. 
So, yeah. so, um, so I think, I think, I think, you know, I would, I guess, agree with your point that um, we, we tend to consume negative stories much more than we consume positive ones. But I wouldn't say it's because we want to. I would say it's because it's been figured out that there's a way to get around what we want and to make yeah. us dependent on the threat stories. Yeah, I think, uh, and I was, you weren't here, Morrison, but I was telling Reggie, what, one thing I used to tell my students is there's two emotions, love and fear. But then the other thing on, on the underside of it is even at a, I mean, when you're talking like at a vibrational level, love is subtle, right? Fear is abrasive, right? And so to me, you have the same thing when you're thinking about positive and negative, um, positive and negative images or, or, or wants and needs, right? You know, like you said, we all may want, you know, the the mate, uh, the beautiful mate or, uh, you know, the, to have camaraderie or friendship. But like when when they're when that threat is there, that's much more abrasive than I got a hug a second ago. You know, it's not that the energies yeah. are, are, are different in bandwidth. It's just that one is much more punchy than the other, you know. And, and they're operating on different timescales too, right? So, so yeah. uh, you know, I think there's also a slow, fast thing going on. So love mm. operating on a slower timescale, right? Mm -hmm. The love that you feel, you know, for your child when your child is born is definitely something. And people who have it, you know, they hold their child for the first time, they're feeling something profound. But, you know, but 20 or 30 years on, there's a different kind of relationship that gets built or for a friend or for anything else, right? It, it, it takes more than two minutes. Um, hmm. But you can feel crazy fear in less than a second. Yeah. Right? You get bumped off your surfboard by a fin. It doesn't take any time. You know, it turns out it's a <laughs> dolphin, but it doesn't take any time till you figure that out, that you are just yeah. terrified, right? Yeah. Whereas your love for surfing might have taken, you know, months really click. You know, you like the idea yeah. of it and you get out there, you can't do it. And it takes a few weeks before you can get on your first wave. And so I think I think that's the other part of it is that is that love takes time and uh, and, and fear is instant. Hmm. Come on now. So many bars and that whole little, the whole yeah. thing. I just was thinking, even in the uh, analogy of holding the baby for the first time. Right. And, and what that feels like and then possibly dropping the baby or walking across the room. And then the baby, like, you, you, you know, you, you stumble. That fear is, like, instantaneous. It's going to be huge. Whole, just life-changing. Like, oh, my God, I'm going to drop my son. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. We are incredibly fragile, right? Like, you know, the fact that any of us is alive is this crazily ridiculous situation. There's so much that can go wrong in any of our bodies in any instant. Um, and then there's the world outside. And, you know, we are these incredibly fragile beings. And so, and so of course, you know, um, threat is, is so potent. Like, you know, we're all, we're all these little water balloons, right? And the world's a bunch of needles. And you just sort of spend your, all your time, you know, thinking, oh. But, um, but what happens is, is that, like, as, as organisms, we would like to kind of find our way to making the most of this life with the correct appreciation of threats, right? That we should, you know, we should get um, the amount of threat we need. But what's happened instead is we're getting a kind of threat obesity, right? We're getting this excess calories of threat, 
we're getting way more threat than we need because we're being sold threat and we're being you know hooked on threat and so there's an amount of threat like i would like to know that you know a flood is coming that's an important bit of information but i don't want to be continuously sensitized to the idea that i'm a muslim and that guy's a hindu and that we should hate each other like that that is not a useful you know piece of information for me so so i think i think that's what it is is that you have these very fragile beings and they can actually live in a much much better way but, but we've we've chosen to build the system and and the last thing i want to say about that as far as social media is concerned is it comes down to authorship they got authored onto us right yeah like um you know we didn't get to build, build it it got built for us and it didn't even get built by us it got built by very few people who owned this thing built this thing you know maybe in california or beijing or wherever they're based uh and tickled inhabiting it and i think you know if we want any kind of a democratic like participatory future we've got to let people author our relationship with technology much much more than we do it can't just be something that somebody else builds and we get to live you know in their colony i think yeah. I think we need to get people the ability to to author it themselves. Like, you know, what if we were able to decide? I don't want to be sent this scary stuff. Like change my algorithm. Like, dude, send me stuff that actually, you know, that is going to inspire me. You know, connect me to people that I didn't think I was going to be like that actually I've got some quick word, you know, quirky connection to, right? Um, you know, don't don't try to make me predictable. You know, treat me as sort of somewhat unpredictable and give me some unpredictable cool stuff. and but we don't get to do that and so and so i think for me a big part of it is um is that we need to get back into a situation where each of us gets to author their relationship with technology and for me since i can't do that i kind of author my relationship to social media by just not being on it um yeah. but i i think i i maybe prefer a version of it where it wasn't like this and i'd be happy mm-hmm. to hang out with you guys on that version yeah yeah <laughs> I wonder where like I guess books play play a part in this. Cuz I noticed like with technology, right? And, and books have always had competition. Let me first say that cuz I think sometimes we give technology too much credit when we talk about like reasons why people don't read. I, like like the the numbers show at least in the United States that, you know, um individuals are reading less, right? Mm-hmm. um you know washington post has reported on it report on it among other places um but i wonder where, where do books fit into this like relationship to technology and maybe not even books where does like i guess reading long form come in to like kind of help us relate to technology better Do, do you kind of know what I'm trying to go? I, yeah, I, I'm not I getting there. No, no, no. I know what you mean. Look, I, I, I think that if you if you imagine that right now, the the three long form, you know, mass reproduced storytelling forms are cinema, television, books, right? Now, in cinema and TV, what happens is you see something that looks like the world, you know. um Brad Pitt looks like Brad Pitt and Denzel looks like Denzel and you know the sky looks like the sky 
cars look like, and you're a viewer of that world. Now, in books, you don't see at all. You see letters, spaces, and punctuation marks. And that's it. Now, you, the reader, then take that and emotions and feelings and experiences. The reader of a book isn't like the viewer of a TV show or the viewer of a film. The reader of a book is making that book, right? You are taking those little marks and they're prompts for you to imagine your own version of this book, right? Um, you get to determine what these people look like. You get to determine how, how, what they sound like. You get to determine, you know, you're the casting director, the location scout, um, you know, you're, the, you're, you're so much when you make a, when you read a book. Now, I think that's important because, um, you know, when we're kids, we play make-believe. And we say, okay, you know, let's go outside and we're going to both be dinosaurs. We're both going to be pirates. We're going to play house. You know, kids play. When you grow up, you stop doing that with other people most of the time. Um, but when you read a book, you're doing that again. There's two people agreeing to play make-believe. And the writer writes this kind of half book, these words. And the reader takes that half book and makes it into people and feelings and physical sensations and everything. So when I write my books, I often don't use too many names. I don't describe the place in too much detail. We don't know where it's set. We don't know what Anders looks like when he changes color. And the reader then imagines that. And then the reader is left trying to figure out when the book is done, okay, you imagine this. What does that say? What does that make you feel? Like what, if this, what part came from you? What part came from me? You know, and then in the privacy of your own mind, you can figure out how you think about stuff. And I think that's important because the rest of the time we're performing, we're acting for other people. But when we're alone with a book, we don't have to perform. We just get to be ourselves. And I think that's a really special sort of moment uh, that we get. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a really good answer because because yeah, because yeah, I like that. I like that. In terms of what Reggie was asking at, at first, I like that. That with books, you don't have to perform. I mean, <clears throat> you get on social media, maybe, but when you're reading it, you don't have to perform. You know what's interesting, and, and maybe this is me being a little presumptuous or whatever, but I feel like we do have to perform a little bit because to read a book, a little bit because I think. Because you know, I always say we got to meet the author where they're at when we're reading. So is well, that performance, or is that like you know what? What do y'all think? Is that called performance? I don't think you have to meet the author where they're at, though. You, you some should, people, right? Should you? I says do. Who? I think so. Says, well, says who though? Right. <laughs> so, this is the interesting thing. Is right. It's like you definitely have to do something when you read it. <laughs> yeah. But when you say perform, but when you say perform, for me, performing means somebody else is looking at you. When mm. you're reading, the person who's looking at you is you. So if you're doing a performance, the performance is for yourself. You might think it's for somebody else. You might think it's I'm performing to be a good reader. But the only person sitting there to judge whether you read it well is you. So it's, a, it's not like the performance, I think, of being on social media. 
there's nobody else who yeah. gets to see their performance. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of what I meant when I said, if you take that book to, per to social media, now you might be performing, right? Um, but, you know, you ain't got to do nothing when you read. You don't even really have to. Uh, I mean, we would hope you understand the words, right? <laughs> Which, I've seen people go through a whole book and they, they understand the thing, understood the thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. And, and I guess, like, I'm thinking selfishly. I'm, I'm one. This is 1,000% selfish, subjective, and everything. But I'm like, I absolutely have a standard that I need to perform to when I'm reading. You know, that's how I feel. <laughs> I don't <laughs> so. think you're wrong in that. I think that, I think it was a good question. I think. You no, know, but it's great. And, you know, I, I think that there's, there's, in a way, we're getting at two different ideas of performing, right? Yeah. One idea of performing is your sense of what you need to do for yourself. Right. And that's what you call performance. I need to meet my standard of performance. And I think that's one mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. The second mm -hmm. thing is trying to be somebody for somebody else, because that's the role that you play. And I think it's that second sense that we don't have to do when we're readers. The first sense of performing in a way that we think of as being a good reader. Sure. But again, the only judge of that is us. Mm. Yeah. That is that is fair, and, and and I'm definitely not gonna. I, I gotta go to the drawing board before I get to a debate with with most of So, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna, go to the, I'm gonna go to the drawing board, and I'm I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna come back strong too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. But we'll we'll get into the closes now. I mean, as as you know, most, and we're ready to go. You know, for 24 hours or whatever. <laughs> but uh, but you know, we 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 are definitely gonna respect your time. Um, the first closer is always about the dedication if there's one, and the last white man is dedicated to uh Becky. Uh, would you like to say a few words uh for Becky, whom your novel's dedicated to? Yeah, Becky's my editor. Um, and uh she was my editor since 1998 when she wow. my first book, uh, uh Moth Smoke. And you know, Becky's as far as I can say, she's one of the best editors there is. And and the reason why is that. Um, a really good editor, they don't tell you what they think your book should be. A really good editor knows what you want your book to be and helps you figure out how to make it that. Uh, and that's what Becky does, I think, phenomenally well, which is why the book's dedicated to her. That, that is a first, too. That's a first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Dedication. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that, that's really cool. And uh, yeah, I wanted to yeah. ask, and I'm, I'm actually going to double check something too, because I, I just think this is funny, because we talked to uh, Moses McKenzie about this. So I'm just going to double check to make sure, because I don't think there is. What announcements? Yeah. So I wanted yeah, yeah, to yeah. ask, right? Because something that I noticed, like, um, as like authors tend to like produce more books, is the acknowledgements, dedications tend to like stick around, maybe like epigraphs too, but acknowledgements. Slowly but surely. Acknowledge to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, like, uh, just do you know, like, what is your reason for, like, I guess, I I'm pretty sure if I check Mossbook, which I actually do have a copy, um, you probably have some acknowledgements in there. But you know, nope. that's what. Oh nope. no, that's hey. no. So have you? So you've never done acknowledgement section? I've never done acknowledgements. Wow. Um, and and you know why? I, I actually think that um, in a weird way, I feel like I want the book to be its own thing. Mm 
It's on, yeah. Like, I feel like if I put the acknowledgements in the book, um, that's not the book, right? Like, I don't want, I don't necessarily want, I mean, I would be happy not even have a bio and all that stuff, the other things they put on the, on the jacket, but I, there's a copyright page of stuff, you know, that I guess has to be there. But I like the idea that all the words there um, are just the words of the book. And then as far as the acknowledgements go, I'd like to go and see the people mm -hmm. that have been meaningful to me and tell them when I sign the book and hand it to them and say, look, thank you for everything you've done these past five years is how I'd give my acknowledgement. But I think the book itself, I, I kind of feel that like the book should just be the book. It ends on the last sentence and there's nothing else after that. It begins on the first sentence and maybe there's a title page Maybe there's a dedication. I think the dedication for me is okay. Um, it feels like it feels like almost this kind of romantic gesture of like you know mm. here we go. But yeah. but the acknowledgements to me, I guess it feels like letting the world creep into the book. I'd rather mm -hmm. make acknowledgements in person. Cool, cool. That is no, that that that's cool. That is really cool. I I was just blown away. Like never an acknowledgement section. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, what's a book that you've been reading and enjoying lately? Okay, so um, one book that I've been reading and enjoying lately is, um, is pretty old. Uh, it's, it's, it's the Histories by, by Herodotus. And mm. they're, like, they're like hundreds of pages is long. And they come to us from two and a half thousand years ago. And it's sort of interesting because... Um, you know, it's this uh, account, which is obviously in many cases, you know, completely like fanciful. But it's this account of, you know, by this Greek of all these other people nearby, you know, the Egyptians, you know, the people in what we would call Turkey today, the people who would live in Iraq today, right? And he describes these people, their cultures, they've got weird practices, you know, they've got weird sexual practices, weird marital practices, they've got... You know, there's wars that start because somebody's guard saw the queen, you know, in a compromising position. And, you know, um, there's uh, talk about weather and, and farming. And um, what's interesting to me about, these, about this, this book is, you know, a bunch of things. But it's kind of nice to have a direct line back to two and a half thousand years ago and to see how is somebody thinking about stuff. Um, and not as philosophy, but actually describing the world like a work of kind of you know, almost narrative nonfiction. And, um, uh, and, you know, a bunch of stuff starts leaving across. Like, for example, you know, race, the way we think about it today, doesn't exist in Herodotus's history, right? Like, there's all these different people who have all these different ways of doing things and may look different from each other, but there's no race, right? Mm -hmm. there's, there's tribes, there's, you know, ethnicities, I guess. But the modern sense of race doesn't really exist. The other thing which is kind of interesting is how again and again, we seem to make the same mistakes. And you, know, you have these cultures, they build up, they fight wars, they destroy each other. It just makes you feel like there's a cyclical nature to, to like human history. And we sort of think, oh, it's headed in one direction, it's gonna get better, it's just gonna get more technologically advanced. And you, know, you read this book and you're thinking, actually that's not necessarily the only way it can go. So anyway, that's a long answer, but that's one thing I've been reading lately. And, I, and it's, it's long enough that I dip into it, you know, a month every year. And for six years, I've made like half, half the way into the book. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. No, and, and, and that, that, answer, that answer is a perfect length. No worries, uh, by the way. Um, 
one of your favorite books that you've read in the last calendar year? Who? Okay, favorite books that I read the last calendar year. Um, one or some, if you you know. Let me think. Read the last year or published in the last year? Um, just read. Oh, yeah, read, it read. could be. Oh, yeah. oh, read. Okay. Um, read in the last year. I've got a bunch of my stuff back here. Yeah, Kelly Tyrant. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you. Um, I'm going to give you another old one, and uh, and uh, I've been I've been reading it with my daughter, um, and it's 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 Gilgamesh, and it's even older than oh. than uh, than, uh, than Herodotus, right? Gilgamesh, yeah, is, is, yeah. You know, a couple thousand years BC, and so here we have this hero um, in Mesopotamia, you know, modern day Iraq, um, and this uh, he's a great hero. This wild man comes and he's got to fight the wild man and they become best friends. And then the wild man, who's now his best friend, they go on adventures, he dies. And Gilgamesh is like, wait a second, you know, heroes die? Like, what's the point of all this? And there's a flood and there's this whole arc and there's like, you know, there's, there's Noah's flood kind of stories built in there. It's a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. and it, I mean, for me, Gilgamesh is really, really interesting because um, I think that, you know, anybody who wants to read the, the literature of the Eastern Mediterranean, Right. It sort of seems strange to begin with Homer. It seems like actually you should begin with Gilgamesh and then you can make your way to Homer, you know, a thousand years later. But but clearly we know from Herodotus that these cultures are completely in touch with each other. They're, they're communicating all the time. They're sharing stories. This is all going on. And um, and Gilgamesh for me is very you know worthwhile book to, to talk about a story to talk about because it kind of goes against this idea that there's like Western literature, you know, like, you know, like European literature. And then there's like, you know, African and like Eurasian or like Muslim, you know, um, we can make these categories, but our ancient storytelling traditions are really mixed up. Um, and I think we do ourselves a disservice when we sort of pretend that, you mm -hmm. know, somewhere in Greece, 800 BC, somebody comes up with this beginning when clearly there's a conversation going on between that and the writers of, you know, the, the Old Testament of the Bible and of, of, of Gilgamesh and of the Egyptian, you know, uh, literature. And so, uh, and so, yeah, so for me, Gilgamesh is another one. And, and I, I've been um, reading it with my daughter because she was like, oh, you know, we've got the Iliad in school. I'm like, well, mm -hmm. wait a second. before you get to the Iliad, you and I need to go through Gilgamesh so you don't make the mistake of thinking that this thing came from nowhere. With yeah. this, you know, Western literature was born. Yeah. Um, no, everybody who was born had two parents. And uh, and in this case, at least one of the parents was living in Iraq. <laughs> yeah, look, the Epic of Gilgamesh is one of those, is, is one of the quintessential stories that they utilize in this idea of, that I brought up in the beginning of there being like this, this traditional human hero, right? And, and so, yeah, I, I totally second that. And I loved uh, reading the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, when I was uh, when I was growing up. I think I read it a couple times, um, or, or excerpts at least, right? In um, in my English classes. Yeah, and and the interesting thing about that part of the world, right, is is that you know that that's the hinged part of the world, right? Like that's where Europe, Asia, Africa all met, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and we now think, oh, there's these three different continents, and they have three different cultures and three different things. Whereas, you know, so much of our most ancient literature comes from the place where they all mixed. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's interesting to start with that, the Greeks and the Assyrians and the Sumerians and the Egyptians, and to sort of say, look, let's start there before mm -hmm. we start ourselves as belonging to these, you know, completely different continental civilizations. Uh, let's yeah. look at our mongrel, our mongrel ancestors and see what we have in common. Yeah. And the cool thing that you mentioned, too, that um, I love about it is you can trace that flood story. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, all of the flood stories that show up what is the, in the Gita, the Bible, it, it all is there. And it's so cool because it's interesting when you think about it. Of course, you think the whole world is flooded because it's Mesopotamia. That is yeah. the whole world at that point, you know, yeah. in terms of, you know, the people who are writing. Um, and so that's one of my favorite things that I did when I was real young. It's because I was questioning the Bible to my mom. She was like, well, read was her response. And I was like, well, look, mom, all the way here. Right. So it was just cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to add the Gilgamesh to my reading list. You hadn't done anything with Epic <laughs> Gilgamesh in school? Nothing? No. You'll, you'll, you'll like it. <laughs> so I, I think, I, I think, y'all read it. In excellent. 11th, I think in 11th grade, I think we tried to do it, but at the time, I, oh, yeah, I'm not going to lie, yeah. I wasn't. <laughs> you know, I eventually came around, as you see, right? Yeah. You know, I got books everywhere now. Beowulf? But, uh, <laughs> you did Beowulf? Oh, but you know, the Beowulf thing about it did me. <laughs> it's funny because I think a lot of these stories actually, um, it's almost better to read them out loud and mm. to have some read them to you. You know, you had yeah. some kid Gilgamesh and you're like, you know, um, read this and write, you know, 2,000 words on, you know, whatever. Um, brain turns off. But mm, yeah. you, know, you go back, go to the banks of the biggest river where you are at the end of flood season, you sit yourselves down and you have somebody who can read well, uh, you know, read to you and try to find the rhythm in it and try to find the, you know, the, the flow of it. Um, and before you know it, you're in a trance. And I think that like a lot of a lot of um, a lot of these sort of ancient texts, uh, you know, we we approach them now with our eyes, um, but but they were transmitted you know, by people's ears. So um, so I think I think for me that's 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 an important part of, of it. So it, it, when we get older, in a way, we get that voice in our heads and we're able to read and hear it. But when we're younger, we often hand to young people, "Hey, read this thing," and the kids like, "Oh, mm -hmm. here." Whereas I think if, you know, you sat down with an amazing orator and said, okay, now here we're going to do this, or you have the yeah. kid perform, uh, it would be different. Yeah, it's the same thing with your story. Me and Reggie both had built a question about the prose and the running nature of the sentences yeah. uh, and the usage of the commas and what that, and what that does in terms of inside the reader's mind, uh, pacing-wise and trance-like-wise and puts you in this misty, dream-like state. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, it, it matters a, a lot. Yeah, that, that, that's really important because, you know, um, uh, in a way, for this novel, The Last White Man, the idea of having these long sentences with commas as the main kind of punctuation uh, was you sort of set up these rhythms and uh, eventually, hopefully, the reader sort of just gets into it and they keep mm -hmm. going. Mm -hmm. And every punctuation mark in, 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 you know, in writing is a pause, right? Um, they're just different kinds of pauses. Yeah. Full stop, you pause and you take a breath and you make a full stop. Comma is like a forward leaning pause. You sort of hit it, there's a little bit of a break, but you're still going forward. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I think what's kind of interesting is if you, if you have these long sort of sentences that, that sort of build, reader will encounter something. They may not like it. They may say, wait a second, what do you mean here? But they don't get to stop. 
Yeah. They keep going. They keep going. Yeah. They keep going. And so the moment of judgment gets deferred. And then you get to the end of the sentence, and then you can sit back and say, what do I think about this? But you don't have your first knee-jerk reaction. You've been taken past it, and you get to react to it later. And the other thing I think which is really interesting is, is you know, with longer sentences, you sometimes get to build in different kinds of cadence and rhythm. And that's really important, you know, particularly when you're writing stuff that might be uncomfortable for people, is because we accept language based on how it sounds sometimes. You know, like if you think of what made like a Martin Luther King speech so powerful, right? I mean, he's saying stuff that's true and wise, right? But, but, but that's not enough. Um, other people have said stuff that's true and wise, and even the same stuff that's true and wise. Yeah. The difference is, you know, he's setting up a rhythm and there's a musicality and a cadence to it. And so you're listening to him and you're thinking, okay, this is the right word. This is the right word. This is the right word. And it starts to become the music of it. Like the same way when he's playing a song and you're hearing their solo, you're hearing their whatever, you're like, you know, this is, it's the right sound. It, it's, 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 you're already in, in it. And so in a sense, what happens with the Martin Luther King speech is that you, um, you accept the musicality of it, you accept the rhythm of it, you accept that this word is the correct word. And then you're left to deal with the fact that, well, if this was the right word and this was the right word and this was the right word, then they were all the right words. Then therefore, what are you objecting to? And, um, and so in that sense, I think rhythm and cadence is a very interesting way of getting across ideas that might otherwise be resisted. Um, yeah. And so the long sentences let us play with that kind of stuff. And, and you know, while, while we are talking about the last white man, I want to ask you another. <laughs> yeah, I'll see if I can slide in another quick one. Here, right? <laughs> a question. Um, you know, one thing that I noticed too also was like, it was like minimalistic in dialogue. And that was so fascinating to me because the book that, that came to mind was The Nickel Boys, which I also really enjoyed. And like, how, how did, was that like important for the rhythm of the work too? Like you were just saying, like, like, did you have to, because you chose to use so many commas, did you have to like minimalize the dialogue as well for it to work perfectly? Well, no, I think I think you could still have the dialogue. What I what I tried to do was um, I tried to represent conversations without saying what was actually being said. So they spoke about mm -hmm. this, right? But not he said that, she said that, he said that, she said that. Now, there's two parts to it. First of all, um, there's a kind of orality. You know, when you read your books as audio books, you start realizing when you get to dialogue that you have to shift into a different mode. You have to shift into this like actor mode. You have to sort of present this character speaking in this accent, this character speaking in that accent, right? Um, particularly if you don't say he said, she said after every single mode of speech, you start saying just, you know, just put them in inverted commas and quotation marks and you have people saying stuff. Well, when you read that out loud in and in you're recording an audio book, you're like, oh, this is hard to do. And, and I started to think about that. I started thinking, you know, I should write my books in a way that if I read them out loud, they still work. So I can either say he said, she said after each piece of dialogue, um, or I can find a different way of, of getting at it, of, of, you know, making it clear who's speaking. So I don't have to sort of impersonate this character when I'm reading each of these lines. Um, that was one thing that got me started. The other thing which got me started, I guess, on this whole idea of dialogue is, you know, what do books do that's different from films and television? Films and television are built on dialogue. So why don't we say, okay, wait a second, we're doing a different thing here. Um, you, the reader, can kind of imagine what you think they said. We're not going to be a film or a TV show here. There's no screenplay to this one. You know, this is, this is something, this is a treatment that you get to use as, as your, and to build your screenplay from.
And so when you take the dialogue away, I think what happens is the reader is forced to, in a way, imagine the relationship for themselves a bit more thoroughly. Um, I think dialogue has to be very specific. You get a real sense of exactly who this person is, how they're speaking, what's going on. And, and for me, it's almost like you wouldn't tell an actor exactly how to say their lines if you're a screenplay writer. You might if you're a director, but not if you're a screenplay writer. Similarly, I'm not sure I want to tell the reader how to say these lines or how the character should say these lines. I kind of would rather just say, this is the stuff that gets said. Now, the Anders in your imagination can speak, you know, with an Appalachian accent or a Swedish accent or a British accent, depending on where you set this book. Um, and, you know, and I'm going to leave it to you. So, so for me, partly it's, it's the lack of dialogue is just to leave space for the reader to make it their book. And, and, nice, nice. You know, I, I might be getting carried away here, but I'm going to say this. <laughs> you, know, you know, I was saying how, you know, Mosin said, you know, uh, we were talking about performance, and, and I think he's kind of giving me a little strength to my argument that the reader has uh, before. Uh, I think he just, uh, I think he just helped me win. Has to, has to that's have it. a certain. I think performance. that's right. I think, I think the beauty of it is the reader does get to perform, and I mean, and in that sense, the, the, the thing is, you get to perform the role that you've taken on yourself, but nobody is watching, mm -hmm. um, and that's what's so cool. And yeah, so, and so you, the reader is, in a sense, having to, okay, how do I want these characters to perform? How am I going to make this happen, right? There is a performance to that, as you say. You know, the, the reading of a book is a performance, but it's not performative in the way that we were talking about as when we take on somebody else's view of us and we act that way. Like when we're playing pirates as kids, I'm not going to be the pirate that I think that that you know, other kid who's not even here would want me to be. I get to be whatever part I want to be. Um, and that's, that's, I think that's, so in a way, I guess, you know, it's um, like if you're a musician, like it's a difference between showing up and having to perform to get into a music academy yeah. and having your guitar in your bedroom and just jamming by yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have, a, you have an action and an exhibition. You have yeah, performance exactly. like when I run, I, that's the action, right? But if I am running as an NFL player, that's an exhibition. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's it's, it's and, like and, and, a definition that says one and two, Reggie. And, 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 <laughs> it may even be that that NFL player sometimes gets gets in that space where it isn't an exhibition, where they're just mm -hmm. you know they're just them and this divine moment of carrying this ball and like doing what you know they would put on the planet to do, and and they're just sort of in, who knows? Maybe they reach a point where it isn't. I don't know, but but definitely, I think I think that I think that in storytelling. That when we're telling somebody else a story, we know we have an audience. We it's right, hard to forget that. Yeah, ready for your mind to be blown. Perform is sometimes confused with preform. Mm. You have a performance and a preformance. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're talking about here. <laughs> you have a performance. Yes. And a performance. That's what I'm talking about. The pre. You or... well, what I think you're talking about is the performance. Okay. And what we're talking about is the performance. Mm. So you have reading <laughs> performance, and then you have performative reading. Mm. Yeah. Semantics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, no, it's you know, I think I think it's I think it's it's the you who read Gilgamesh in high school, looked at first page and shut the book. You weren't performing. You weren't performing. But the you who then the teacher says on Monday, so what did you think of Gilgamesh? And you said, Well, sir, I think that was a profound meditation on the internet. <laughs> that wasn't performing. <laughs> well, this is it. This is it. it. That's funny. Oh man, yeah. books are pop culture. Yeah, they, are. <laughs> they are, man. Tell us who you would like to see as a guest on Books of Pop Culture. Uh, but this Ooh. performance, ha this person has to be someone that you will be willing to help us connect with in the event that we may need some help getting connected. Let me think about that. Um, So the part of helping you connect is the tricky part because the ones that I would mm -hmm. want I would want to see are the ones I don't know. Um, I'd love to see them having conversations with you. Now the ones that I do know uh, and would be happy to connect you with, yeah, there's there's um, there's lots of people. Now, how about you tell me um, what makes for a really exciting uh, books of pop culture conversation, and I can think of which writer immediately pops to my mind. Okay. I think about the fact that someone that is aware that if we're doing fiction, that a story is in conversation with the world, right? So someone who is not who who is not so concerned with regurgitating what the story is about, but more so concerned with how the story is speaking to the human experience, to what's happening in the world now, in the world past, and in the world that's coming. And I'll throw in someone who is going to definitely like like you did earlier have something you know wonderful to say about the business of writing as well. Well, I mean, I don't know about wonderful. But as you were talking, it's funny. You know, I, I was just in Australia uh, a week ago, and I was down in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, and I was lucky to have dinner with my, my buddy, Nam Lee. And Nam wrote a book called The Boat. Uh, it's this amazing short story collection. And um, he's been doing lots of other stuff since then. Um, I would say he's an interesting guy to get on for multiple reasons. He, he may not be the most, um, shall we say, upbeat uh, uh, person you could talk to about the business of writing, but he certainly has strong views. Um, I think it's interesting also just to get a, uh, a sense of, you know, people in different contexts. So Nam, you know, uh, uh, is of, of Vietnamese descent, but he's um, an Australian-based writer who's lived in the States as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, I think that um, there's so much interesting English language writing happening in so many different places. And when I was sitting with them and talking about, you know, what's it like in the writing world in Australia? What's it like, you know, writing about your next thing? Um, uh, and he's a lot of fun. And uh, uh, so if you guys are up for NAM, I'd be happy to introduce you guys. Sounds great. Sounds great. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And, and Mosin, thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you for writing this, this wonderful book. And 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 just so you, you listeners know, we didn't spoil anything. So if you made it here, you still need to get your copy. Get you a you copy. Can get from bookshop.org slash shop slash books of pop culture. 
so you can read it and come up with your own thoughts and you can preform to perform. <laughs> right? So get your copy, preform, perform. Um, yes, yes. For Mosin Hamid and Achille Nazari, I am Reggie Bailey. This has been another edition of Books of Pop Culture. Thank you so much, and we will see you next time.